morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 13, 1 Kings 13. Well, I want to say that Bonnie is the hostess with the mostest, and we appreciate you and all your hostessing and all your service to people in the church. It's a, it's a fantastic ministry the Lord's given you. So thank you for all that you, that you do. Um, kind of a sad day for me. I'm, um, I'm putting Susan to rest. You see, Susan's been the main gal in most of my illustrations. I always say, Susan does this, and Susan does this, and Susan does this, and Susan does this. And someone said, you know, the kids are betting, is Susan going to be in your illustrations today? So I think I'm going to change. It might be Irene now. But Susan, I'm sorry. I've abused you terribly over the years. <laughs> And I will do my best to lay you to rest. And that rhymes. All right, 1 Kings 13. Um, let me back up in our story so that you understand what, what's happening here. So if you back up, 2 Samuel, God made a, a covenant promise to David that, that your family, from your family, will be a king who will sit on, and this is the key word, an everlasting throne. Now, that's fulfilled in Jesus, okay? But his son was named Solomon, and Solomon disobeyed the Lord terribly with his 700 wives and 300 concubines and on and on and on. And so God told Solomon he was going to take the kingdom from him. And so what he did was he chose a man named Jeroboam who was really a slave of Solomon's and he gave, made him the king and gave him ten tribes. We call those the, the northern tribes, the, the ten northern tribes he became king of. But because of his promises to David, he kept the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and he gave those to a man named Rehoboam who was David's grandson. David's grandson. Now, Jeroboam is fearful that, wait a second, I've got these ten tribes, but the temple and our worship is still in Jerusalem, in, down south. And if, my, if I allow our people to go there, I know they're going to turn against me, and eventually they're going to kill me. So I'll create my own religion. So he made new priests, new temples, new places of worship, basically knew everything. And then to give it some authenticity, he rooted it in Aaron in the Old Testament by building two golden bulls, which you remember that story with Aaron, for the people to worship. Now, where we pick up from today in chapter 13 is it's the day that the temple in Bethel, which is one of the places that one of these gold bulls is, is being consecrated. It's the, the kickoff, the opening service, and everybody is there. And the question is, what would God do? Would he show up? Would he speak against what Jeroboam's done? And what he does is something that they did not expect at all. If you would, look at with me. 1 Kings chapter 13, and I'll read down to about verse 8 or 9. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, 
O altar, altar. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was torn down, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Verse 6. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God, and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. And the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, became as it was before. And the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the same way you came. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we worship you and we praise you and we, we need the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment of your word. We need the Holy Spirit to speak to us in wonderful ways to transform us, to encourage us, to minister to us just where we are in life through this text. And so I ask that the Spirit would speak, Lord, to each individual in their heart and their mind and that Christ may be glorified from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Years ago when I was uh, teaching English in Asia, one of my students, her father died, and she was gracious enough to invite me to the funeral. It was my first Buddhist funeral. And so they rented a, a small Jeep and put me next to the girl they thought I should marry in the back. In the back. And there we went, and her name was not Susan, by the way. And we went down the road over the hills for about 12 hours till we got to this tiny little village. And in the village on the outskirts was a, a small house. Lots of people gathered around. Eventually, I got an opportunity to go in the house, and the, the man's body was over on the right. And then against the wall was an altar. And on this altar, there were pictures of the man, of him with his animals. He was a farmer. And there were little shots of vodka, little bits of meat and fat and things cut off, placed there on the altar. And all important, there was a Buddhist lama or a priest there, and he had a sash, a beautiful blue sash around his neck. And during the time when they proclaimed blessings upon this man so he could be reincarnated to a better life, he takes the sash off and he goes over to the altar and he rests it on the altar to bless the man's future life. <laughs> to the Buddhists, 
the offerings that they were making, they're, they're like money in the bank of heaven. They're righteous credits, which will ensure a better future for this, this kind man. That, that's the work of an altar. 1 Kings 13, there's a great religious celebration going on. The, the temple is being opened in Bethel for the first time. And those ten tribes, they're, they're there, they're, and they've been sold. We're getting back to our roots. We're getting back to where Aaron took us, where we worship golden calves again. We're going to be just like all the other nations, not unusual. And as the king is about to start the ceremony, an unnamed, unknown prophet shows up and prophesies. But he doesn't prophesy against the king, which is what you would expect, Jeroboam. He doesn't prophesy against the people, which you might expect. He prophesies against the altar. And when I first read that, did I get that right? Why? Why is he prophesying against a stone altar? And the reason is because the people, they were not looking to the work of the king to make them right with God, but the work of this altar. They were trusting the sacrifices there to give them grace and forgiveness before their God. Now, I, I would imagine for most of us, you, you don't have an altar in your home. You're not cutting off bits of your steak and putting it there and pouring out shots of Coca-Cola or something. But maybe you do have an altar. Maybe it's in your heart and maybe it's in your mind. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. Do you feel that you start the day with a frowning God and it is up to you to turn his frown for you upside down by certain things like growing in your knowledge of the Bible or by self-denial so he loves me because I give up so much for him. Or maybe self-deprecation. I, I put myself down so I can be humble. Then I know I'm accepted by him. Or maybe for you it's self-sacrifice. You give big to different ministries. And when you do, the feeling returns to you. Now I'm in the favor of God. My friends, the gospel message says to us that we share in Christ's sacrificial crucifixion by faith through grace alone, not by imitating his sacrifice with our own sacrifices. And I think we have to be careful, very careful. What we end up doing is actually dishonoring Christ's death, God's sacrifice for us, because we begin to believe it is actually the things that we do for God that makes him smile upon us, turns his frown upside down, rather than what Christ has done, and I am joined to that by faith. I am in Christ by faith. So, here's our main idea today. We must look to the work of Christ, not to work of our altar, to make us right with God. And that's not just salvation, that's every day. Two ways we want to see this. First, let's look at the grace to the unbelieving king. And then second, we're just going to look at the response to the grace. So let's, let's start at the festival, the big festival at Bethel. Look in your Bibles at verse 1. 
And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. So the king, he's replaced all the Jewish feasts such as Passover. And this one is tabernacles, remembering when the Jews were in the wilderness. He's replaced those with his own feasts. Now he's built a big temple in Bethel and he's placed one of those golden bulls there. This is the inauguration service. It's, it's everybody is there. And he's ascended somehow. I don't know if it's steps or what, or, but he's ascended up. And he, there he is beside the altar, ready to make the first offering. Almost like a baseball game where the pitcher's out there and he's throwing the first pitch so the game can get started and everybody is watching. That's the scene here. And then look at your Bible. And behold, a man of God came from Judah. God sends, you see that? A man of God. He's a no-name prophet. He's a, he's a nobody in that world. But he's from the tribe of David. In other words, the very people which these ten tribes in Jeroboam have broken away from, they hate the enemy. They show up. And so you can imagine the whole crowd turns to him and they're looking at this man. What's he want? What's he doing? And notice verse 2, he cries out. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, the son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest, the bones of the on the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. Stop there. He speaks not to the king. He doesn't speak to the crowd. He prophesies about the altar and its destruction. Now why would he do that? Well, how do you make a Jewish altar completely desecrated and useless? You put human bones on it. That's how. That's Numbers 19. And so the prophet says, from the house of David, your enemy, will come a king by the name of Josiah, and he will take the bones of these very priests, and he will sacrifice them on this altar. And what they all heard was, he's going to desecrate this altar. This altar will be useless. This altar will be no good. 350 years later, that's exactly what happened. There's a king by the name of Josiah, who brought revival to the nation. He went to this very temple in Bethel, and there he took the bones from the tomb that was there of the priest, and he burned them on the altar, 2 Kings 23. So the altar was null and void and useless. Now you can imagine the expression on the crowd. <laughs> Who's this guy? Yeah, right. So he gives a sign, verse 3. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes poured out. Now verse 5. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now, here's what's really important about that. There's two things. First, you see that the altar there is torn down. And the significance of that is the altar of their God was connected deeply to the nation and the prosperity and the future of that nation. 
So you might remember how the Philistines stole the Ark of the Covenant from the Jews, and the Jews were distraught. And so it is here. When it says the altar was torn down, what it's saying is this nation itself will be torn down by God. But there's a second thing here. Notice in your text how it says, and the ashes will be poured out. Well, the, the ashes of an offering, there was a very particular place that the priest would take those ashes that was clean, ceremonially clean, and they would put them there. These ashes are poured out in the temple. And what that is saying to them is this sacrifice and this worship is not and will not be accepted by God. So would God do anything with a new religion being formed against his people? Yeah. He shows up with incredible grace to the king who's rejected him and created a cheap substitute for him. How? He sends a messenger to speak to him, to tell him, look, this is the direction you're going. This is what's coming. To show him incredible signs. All this before he starts his wicked religion of worshiping these golden bulls. And we see the end in verse 33. And after this, Jeroboam did not turn from his wicked ways. In John 6, Jesus, if you know the story, he's, he and his disciples, they've been out, and he sent out the disciples preaching. And he takes a bit of a holiday, he takes a bit of a vacation. So they, they get in the boat at the Sea of Galilee, several boats, and they go across the lake, and they, they go to a, a mountainside, and there they're going to have a bit of rest. But while they're there, the crowd realizes what's happening, and they follow him there. And of course, you know it is the feeding of the 5,000, but actually, that means 5,000 men. It probably means 10 or 12,000 people were there. And so Jesus sees the need of the crowd. Of course, you know, he gets some bread, he gets some dried fish, and he feeds them. Now, they decide to leave, the disciples do, and go across the lake again to Capernaum. Well, they leave, Jesus stays, he walks on the water, he gets to Capernaum, the people wake up, there's no Jesus. There's no free food. <laughs> so they go and they find him in Capernaum, and they come to him. And this is what they say. They want more free food. And Jesus says, the work of God is not to give you free food, but that you believe in the one he sent. And they say, what sign do you do that we may believe? In other words, yes, you just performed an incredible sign. You fed 10 to 12,000 people with almost nothing. Yes, you've had an incredible sign. You've walked across the water. But you want us to believe, give us more signs. Give us more food. Here's my point. Signs and power don't change people's hearts. The grace in the work of the Spirit alone do. Signs didn't change Jeroboam. They didn't change the 5,000. They didn't change you. And often the church thinks what we need to change our community, to change our country, to change our church, to change my heart, is for Jesus to do some supernatural signs. God gives signs to confirm his truth. But listen, it is the Spirit that changes people's hearts always. The Spirit regenerates the heart, makes it new by infusing and putting into that heart the very nature of Jesus. 
And Christ there in the heart then gives new desires and new direction in life. So that after we become a believer, who we are is still the same. But what you are has changed completely. And this work is not accomplished by a sign, but by the Spirit. Now, let's go to the second thing. There's the first, the grace that's shown to the king. Second is, let's look at the response to grace. Notice the first response, what he says in verse 4. Verse 4 in your Bibles. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. Stop. So the king, he's on the altar. Everybody sees him. He stretches out his hand to the prophet who's there, who's just prophesied against this altar, and he says, seize him. God strikes his hands with paralysis so that he cannot move it. And what God is saying is, I have put the kingdom in your hand, and now I'm going to take the kingdom out of your hand. <laughs> now, notice then, verse 6, the king, the king changes his tone. And the king said to the man of God, Entreat now the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. And the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as it was. More grace. More grace. And a sign what can happen with repentance to this northern kingdom. It's not too late. Healing and restoration. So there's his first response to the grace of God. Seize him. Here's the second. Verse 7, look in your Bibles with me. And the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself. Notice these words, I will give you a reward. <laughs> Here's his second response to grace and particularly to the healing of God. I will pay you for what you've done for me. I'm going to pay for your prayers. I'm going to pay for your healing. I'm going to earn the grace that was freely given to me. You see, there's something we need to understand. God's saving grace, it's not opposed to action. It's opposed to earning. If you are a believer, we need to be very careful that we have not set up an altar in our own hearts where we lay all of our good actions before God and then try to earn what has already been given freely to us in Christ and that is the righteousness of Christ. So grace and salvation is not opposed to action. It actually demands action, a response. It's opposed to earning. And that's what happens on an altar, whether it's a physical altar or it's an altar in my heart. In 1729, two of my heroes, John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist Church, the Methodist movement, you should say, they arrived at Oxford to begin classes, and they had a real desire to know the things of God. So they had three friends, and they formed a group where they would study, and they were committed to living holy lives. That You might have heard of this group. They were jeered by the other students, and they were called the Holy Club. And so in an effort to overcome sin, they would fast every Wednesday and Friday. 
They studied the Bible four nights a week for hours. They prayed long into the night. They brought food to those in prison. They taught orphans how to read. And when you hear that, you think, wow, what amazing young Christian men. But they weren't converted. <laughs> and this is what George Whitfield, one of them, says. Its members knew nothing of the new birth. And in their search for spiritual satisfaction, turned increasingly to outward rituals. And what he's saying is, these things that we were doing, we were putting on the altar so that God would be pleased with us. But just like Jeroboam, he then describes the effect on his heart. My whole soul was barren and dry. And I was like a man locked up in iron armor, always looking for some way to make God happy with us. The end result of the altar. Let's close with this. The unnamed prophet said, one day from King David, from the tribe of Judah, Jeroboam's altar will be destroyed. And God's work did not stop there. It was starting there with Josiah who came. But that was a picture of the fulfillment that would happen with the true king who came from David's line. And his name was Jesus. And it would be his sacrifice on the cross, his once-for-all sacrifice that would free you and free me from ever having an altar that we need to go to, from ever wondering, have I done enough? From ever having an altar in my heart and mind where I lay all the good things I do day by day and say, Lord, now I know you're pleased with me. For the gospel says that you are joined by faith to Christ and to his sacrifice. And you are righteous now because you are in him. Father, I... I thank you so much that you freed us from the altar. Lord, now we come to the altar and we worship. <laughs> we respond with worship. We respond with repentance. We respond with joy. Father, we don't respond with laying our actions to earn anything. Father, I just praise you that the work of your son is sufficient to forgive and to wash the greatest of sinners, Lord. Thank you that in your wisdom you have joined us to the once for all cleansing sacrifice of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.